So, uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome back. If you're coming back, and if you, this is the first time dialing in into the Inspire series, then a very warm welcome. I'm particularly excited about today's session, although I think I say that about every session because we've had some phenomenal people on the panel. Uh, but I'm going to be getting into that in a wee minute. First of all, though, I'm going to kick off and hand over to Megan so that she can give a much better introduction than I can. Megan, CFO of EOH, over to you. Thanks, Colin. And I noticed you didn't say my surname. So w oh. welcome, everyone. <laughs> and thanks for participating in this week's episode of Inspire series. So my name is Megan Padigardi. I'm the FD of EOH. Last week, we kicked off season two of the series with India G Gary Martin from Washington, D.C. She is a leadership um, expert and coach who spoke to us on equality transformation. The conversation was tough but riveting, and she shared some incre incredible insights into her own experiences on equality challenges and what she is doing to assist and transform behaviors of senior management and executives across the world. This week, we speak to our very own CEO, Stephen Van Collar, on his journey to transform EOH. Prior to joining EOH, Stephen was the MTN, at the MTN Group and served as Vice President of Digital Services, Data Analytics, and Business Development. He was also a member of the MTN Group Executive Committee. And prior to that, he served as a CEO of APSA Capital. From my perspective, Stephen has been one of the most amazing CEOs to work for. He, his visionary focus on what EOH of the future can be is amazing sharp mind that can distill complex issues so quickly. And above all, his way of approaching everything from a principal perspective and leading with purpose really makes him an amazing leader. And I think we can really expect an open and honest discussion today. Thank you again for your time today um, in terms of what promises to be a really in insightful episode. You're also welcome to post your questions or comments in the chat for our speaker. With that, I'd like to now hand over to Colin Owls of Innovation Catalysts, who will facilitate today. Thanks, Colin. That's great. Thank you very much, Megan. And again, welcome to everyone that's dialing in. Just going to play a little bit of music in the background um, while I ask you just to say hello to each other and remind you that if you do want to ask questions, uh, please do post it in the Q&A, which you should see at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Uh, we're more likely to get to them. Um, and if you can guess the track and you can guess why I'm actually playing it, I'll try to remember and tell you why a little bit later. Um, then uh, do put that in the chat as well. Hey, Marius. How are you doing? He's gone. <laughs> right, Stephen. Um, let's kick off, shall we? Everyone, I think, on the call is going to know who you are. We don't need to go through uh, your full story. And I think everyone that's been reading the newspapers over the last 12, 24, 36 months is going to know, or at least think they know, a huge amount um, about EOH. So I want to kick off and ask a question. When you were thinking about joining EOH and taking on this role, could you possibly have imagined what you would find? Thanks, Colin. And uh, thanks, Megan, for those kind words. It's been a huge uh, um, uphill drive. I couldn't have done it without the team. But um, Colin, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. I was asked that question some time ago in uh, one of the um, magazine interviews, and my answer was absolutely no. I, I mean, I didn't know about the bribery and corruption for sure. I knew that there was um, some professionalization that needed and, you know, there wouldn't be all the systems and that. But, you know, when you, when you grow up in big corporate, you just take a lot of things for granted. And as you know, EOH was 272 small companies pulled together and they never ever did the big listed company, um, you know, processes and, uh, and procedures. So I totally underestimated that. Well, I also totally underestimated those because I'm sure your next question is would I actually have taken the job. It's interesting, you know, if um, in um, February of 2019, I would have, you know, said to you, no, definitely not. If someone had told me, come and clean up all this bribery and corruption, um, I would have said, no, it's a bit like climbing Mount Everest. When someone says, go and climb Mount Everest, you think, well, I'm at the bottom. Do I really want to get to the top? And you struggle up and you, you know, have 
have difficult moments and it's hard to breathe and you suffocate, et cetera, et cetera. And you, and, and you struggle, but when you get to the bottom, you go and, you know, high five it with everyone and you look back and think what a wonderful journey that was. Um, the best thing about EOH though, is that uh, I always knew from speaking to my customers from the banking days and MTN that, um, you know, it was a really good company, lots of good people, lots of good RP, but I also totally underestimated that. It's a lot better than I thought it was. It's a lot broader than I thought it was. And I think this is one of the reasons why we made it through two crises now is just the, the core business is just fantastic and has a massive opportunity uh, for you know, the future for the fourth industrial revolution and hopefully the fifth industrial revolution as well. So when so you would have still uh, taken it. Maybe at the end we'll um, ask. No, of course we're going to ask about what you plan over the uh, the next twelve or twenty four months. I know a lot of people would be interested in that. So you've arrived. It's day one. Over those first couple of weeks and and indeed couple of months, you start to uncover um, huge numbers of problems. Um, there's huge amounts of negative press. The share prices is, is obviously uh, just literally quite literally fallen off a cliff. What I want to to go through on today's call isn't just what's happened, but it's how you've actually approached it. Because, you know, this is really what I'm hoping that the people that are dialing in are gonna get, the, the rest we can get from the newspapers, it's more how you approach it. So, so what exactly do you, or did you do in those first couple of weeks um, to start, you know, with that blank piece of paper and going, oh, something I can't say on this particular call, this is now where we're gonna start focusing our attention. Yeah, um, you know, Colin, when you get there, you, the, the first thing you do is you go and look underneath the hood and you try and understand the detail that you couldn't do in sort of a cursory uh, due diligence. And um, um, I started having a look at that and I, I realized that there were some problems. Um, there were problems like we had uh, money um, sitting in a Zimbabwe bank account Although it was earmarked as dollars, we were um, we were recording revenue and everything in U.S. dollars, not in Zimbabwe dollars. You know, with an exchange rate, obviously, but clearly, reality, you know, wasn't that. Uh, and so um, I realised that there, you know, were some issues we're going to have to have to deal with. And then, as you start digging, I realised there was a you know problem. And um, so the first thing I had to do was to uh, change the people. As um, I was told by um, Mark Lamberti once, uh, Stephen, if you can't change the people, change the people. And I really needed to get some some people in that I could trust. And so the first change was was clearly the FD. There's a problem with the numbers. Um, this, the second thing I did sort of simultaneously was uh, I realized that I couldn't trust the numbers. And so we needed to go back to basics. And I needed to actually run the business on a cash you know, basis. Have a look at the bank accounts every day and see whether the money is going up or going down and see where it's going up and where it's going down so I could start you know, um, homing in on the problems. And so we created a treasury function. And those were the two big things um, immediately. And then, um, you know, obviously that was um, um, early on and then Literally, as we started going, 10 minutes uh, on, on the 10th of February 2019, we got that, uh, that uh, bolt from the blue, as they say, um, when uh, there was a whistleblower who had gone to the, the press and we found out that uh, there was this issue uh, with Microsoft licenses and um, the bribery and corruption. And so at that point, once it's you know, out in public, you have to you know, manage it totally, totally transparently. And in fact, you have to go to 110%. And in these crises, I've always said, there's only, there's three Cs. The first C is communicate, the second C is communicate, and the third C is communicate. You cannot communicate enough. And so we started, first of all, finding out what the problem was. And so we got ENS gave them a totally unfettered mandate because clearly as a CEO, I'm going to be trying to save a business and look forward. I'm going to be conflicted in managing the past. And so we gave them a totally un unfettered mandate. They then had a look, you know, we're, we're summarizing reporting back. And then we were obviously communing, um, communicating that 
as quickly as possible to our, our um, all our stakeholders because you know we are people business, we are service business. If we lose our customers, we lose our business very quickly. And if we lose our, our key staff, you're going to also lose your business very quickly. So we very quickly have to communicate into the staff and into the, the, um, the customers and um, stakeholders on, on what we're doing. And there's some clear guidelines to do it uh, of you know, what you have to be doing to get credibility. And we went through that process and I knew I had to do it quickly because uh, the longer you wait, the more people start perceiving that it's a different problem. Oh, yeah, but I just asked me. Okay. Okay. Sorry, no, 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 it's fine. Thank All you. Right. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. We have some guests. I'm going to go okay. and mute that one. Um, okay, right. well, so, and so, so uh, Colin, we just went through that process and we, you know, um, I drove it. And then obviously I had to fix the future. And so we got a chief risk officer in from, you know, one of the financial services um, places because you know from that background that's where it's done ironclad and I need someone I needed someone who had done it you know to the nth degree and so we got Fatima in as well and she started setting up changing the culture the governance and everything to give us the, the credibility so it was some basic steps but you have to go back to basics and you have to communicate if you want to summarize it so let's summarize that yeah so basic steps going back to the basics cash flow management um, Bringing in new people, um, that was again something that Zaf spoke about in one of the previous sessions that we had here about you've got to bring in, it's very difficult to get the existing people to go and make a radical wholesale change in an existing organization, you do need new blood. Um, and then radical transparency, communicate. Can we uh, talk about, it? I'm gonna use one example. Um, you created, your team created an app, a whistleblowing app, uh, which I believe you've now offered outside of IOCO for anyone um, in South Africa, in the world, I guess, that can actually use it. That's, that's a remarkable step. I mean, that's not just communicating and transparency. Nine out of 10, 99 out of 100 CEOs that I've come across would find that incredibly difficult to be that level of transparency. Where, when did you start becoming, you know, uh, realizing that this level of communication is so powerful? Um, so just just going back to the basics, I wanted to add something if I can. Someone, one of my staff uh, came up with this quote, and this is about you know focusing on the basics and cash. And he said to me, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is reality. And I just want to leave that out with, with people because of this crisis we're in at the moment, because of the, re the recession we're going in. Don't worry about anything else other than the cash. It's the most important thing. So going back to that, you know, Colin, one thing I've learned over time, and uh, just as certain as death and taxes are, um, so is the fact that everyone makes mistakes, including myself, including everyone. And you have to anticipate that at some point you're going to make, make a mistake. But as Michael Jordan says, you know, he's missed every basket he didn't shoot. And so if you don't try, you never fail. But if you don't try, you never succeed. And so... I'm very well aware that I will make, make mistakes over time, but it's how you deal with them. And I've never had a, had, a, had a situation in my life where I've made a mistake, I've you know, fessed up to it, and you know, people have been angry about it. All they want you to do is fix it. And so this, this transparency thing is so important, number one. Number two is, is that your staff and your, your customers are your best ears on the ground. They are at the coalface. Um, they know what's going on far better than you do. And so, you know, creating this app that actually anyone can download, um, but obviously if you want to use it for a company, you then pay the hosting and the legal fees, you know, behind it because it is, um, it is anonymous. Um, but it's amazing how much information we get through that app. Um, it's come off quite a bit, but right in the beginning, we got so much information that helped us deal with the issues um, that it was, it, you know, looking back, it was one of the best things we did. The second thing clearly is then you, you have to treat whistleblowers with the utmost respect. You have to take the information, you have to investigate it, you have to give feedback, and you have to deal with anything that comes out. There are people that abuse it, 
you know, they try and get people into trouble because they're having a personality clash and, you know, things like that. But if you've got the proper processes, you very quickly can, you know, um, sift through that. But once people realize you're serious about them whistleblowing and you're going to do something about it and they see action, all of a sudden you get 99% of your staff actually, you know, policing your company for you. And once you've got that, you very quickly weed out, you know, the, the, the bad apples in the bunch. Perhaps it's an unfair question, but why do other CEOs and, and leaders seem to find this quite difficult? I'm not, you know, if, if I look back 15 years when I took my first CEO job, you take any problem in the business quite seriously, you know, quite personally, because you the, you know, that's where the buck stops, you the public face. And so if there's a problem in the business, you, you sort of take it personally on, your, on yourself. And one thing I learned over, over the time is that success and failure isn't a point in time. You know, um, if you're a CEO or, or a leader and you think that if I do these 10 things, my job's finished, then you, you are going to be a failure. Because as a CEO or a leader, you never finish. Life is changing every single day. You have to get used to the fact that every day you wake up, you've got another set of issues to deal with. That's your job. Deal with them, deal with them appropriately, move on. Your job is never finished. It's like saying, I don't have to learn anymore because I've just done my degree or I've just done my PhD. I've now you know, finished studying forever. In a world that's moving so fast, you have to continually learn, you have to continually change, you have to continually deal with um, uh, uh, issues. And I think that is the large you know, problem. Sometimes egos get in the way of actually what you have to deliver. Um, I don't see what went on at EOH as a reflection on me or any of the team. I see what we're doing about it as a reflection on us. And we will make some mistakes, we have made some mistakes, but uh, if you get your whole organization working with you, they, they very correct very quickly help you correct. And that's when you get a really cool culture. You're about two years in now in terms of, you know, uh, fixing and, and repairing. Can you just give us a quick summary of the, the successes that you've had to date and the, the moments that you're proud about? Well, there's, a, there's a few things, I think. Um, the first one is really being able to attract some very good people to come and help. It's amazing how many people have put their hands up to come and sort the problem out. And I can only think it's because we've been so open and transparent about our, you know, stand against things like uh, corruption, like um, equality, uh, etc. And so, you know, people have, have come forward and said, we want to be here. And we've ended up with some very, very high quality staff, which has really made a difference to, you know, um, the business. And it's allowed the team to move forward. So, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the fact that we made decisions so quickly. We realized very quickly what the problem was. And, um, you know, we've sold, I think, since the, if, if you take the 10th of February last year as the starting point, because that's when, you know, it was really difficult. We've sold over 45 businesses. We've raised over 1.8 billion rand. We've paid down debt from 4.1 billion down to, you know, um, um, a two and a half billion. It's a fundamentally different business and we've done it in such a short time. The third thing that I think has been absolutely unbelievable is that the team, as soon as they realized that I was serious about change and the things we had said, every single person got behind it. You know, we've done a bottom-up um, strategy review and we did it, you know, a clean sheet, zero-based, um, and we did, you know, cross-functional challenges, and uh, that's never been done in 22 years. And um, that fundamentally has changed the culture of the businesses. You know, one of that was 272 speedboats all operating on their own with no two-way communication into something that's probably 20 or 30 frigates, destroyers, all communicating. And obviously we've got some work to do, but actually working together. And that meant that the whole business was really intent on turning the business around and stopping the, 
the bleeding. And if you've seen our SENS announcements and that, you can see we are now, as um, one of my colleagues says, we're now rowing our own boat. We can now manage our business. All we have to do now is just deal with the, the capital structure to get it into something that's flexible enough to take advantage of what's happening uh, in the world at the moment. You've plugged the gaps or you've plugged the leaks using the boat analogy. I'm imagining all the people with like thumbs um, sticking through into the bottom of these. Anyway, not a good analogy. Um, so that approach that you started with in terms of back to basics, are you now at a, a point where you're able to look now longer term and more futuristically about where you're hoping to take the business? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting um, that, um, you know, we've been through now, we've been hit with two crises, you know, one after the next. And it's interesting to see the attitude of staff at the moment is that, you know, failure is just a problem waiting to be solved. And they've really thrown themselves headlong into, you know, how do we imagine ourselves for the, the future? It was very interesting in the budgeting process and going through the, the, the final approvals and everyone doing their presentations. For the first time that uh, since the 10th of February, uh, when it really became apparent, people were talking about three years and five years. This is what we're gonna create, this is where we're gonna go. And that's an amazing difference because people, you know, the staff and uh, the people of EOH are now in, in, a, in a position that they believe that there's a long-term future and they, they're driving for it. And I think that's absolutely critical because they're the people that are eventually going to you know, drive it forward. So let, let's talk about that. So you're now looking and, and your colleagues are looking out three to five years. Um, is this now, what was your saying there? Revenue's vanity and, and profit is sanity. So you're now looking out more towards you know, future profits, future revenues, uh, future business lines. How are you introducing this idea of, of creating a central purpose for the organization to bind around to help drive those collaborative teams towards achieving these targets? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. You know, um, in today's world, especially in, you know, with um, digitization, with the access to data, the transparency that digitization works, um, it really is squashing margins everywhere. Um, and it's also allowing smaller businesses to compete with bigger businesses because of this access to things like cloud computing, etc. cetera. Um, and so um, you really need to get every single staff member to give you 100% of their effort. I remember I tell a story when I was a youngster, young banker, and I went to see Tulani Kabashi, at, uh, he was the CEO at uh, Eskom. And as I walked out of his office, we looked over that huge inside of, uh, of uh, their offices, Megawatt Park. And I said to him, wow, Tulani, this is such a big office. How many people work here? And he said to me, Stephen, at my last count, about 30%. And um, it was just such a good analogy because in today, if you only got you know, 30% of your staff working, you've got a big problem. You have to get 100% out of them. And so you have to motivate them and you have to make it a place where they really want to work. And so, you know, that's been a key focus for me is just, you know, giving people the ability to work, uh, giving them accountability, but also giving them the ability to make decisions and, um, you know, drive the business. And I think that's been a key change that we've tried to get right. And, and how are you um, progressing on actually setting a, a, a purpose at the center of IOCO and EOH? Do you yeah, have so, one? Yeah, so, you know, this is this whole thing against profit versus purpose. Um, you know, profit is an outcome. You know, purpose is a way of doing things. And uh, if you don't have a purpose, you don't get everyone working together and pulling in the same direction. You know, I've talked about um, uh, before, you know, just think about the Oxford Cambridge rowing race and you've got, you know, um, eight people in a long boat and they all, all decide they want to go in di you know, different direction. They'll be rowing very hard and using a lot of um, energy, but they won't get anywhere. And this is the most important thing about a purpose. And, you know, also in, in, 
in, in today's transparent world, you can't have, um, you can't expect to have a purpose that suits everyone. You'll have a purpose, but then you allow people to make a decision of whether they want to join the organization or leave the organization because they don't agree with that purpose. But you have to have a group of people who identify with the purpose. And our purpose, as you know, is called, we, we call it solve. Uh, and uh, this is really goes to the heart of our, um, our business is that we want to solve problems for society, solve problems for our, our customers and solve problems for us ourselves. We don't do anything. We won't, won't sign off anything, any project, any budget, unless it is solving something. And you've, I've had that conversation before about friction. In today's world, if you're not solving a friction point, um, you're not solving anything. Um, it's, you, know, you can come up with great ideas, but if they don't make people's lives better or change something where there's a problem, it's never going to be a success. I'm just going to launch a poll. Let's see what everyone else thinks. The question is, do you believe purposeful organizations tend to outperform their profit-led peers? I'm launching that now. It'll be interesting to see what results uh, we get on that. I don't know, Stephen, what's your view? I mean, let's just go and give that a little bit of context. Tesla is a purposeful organization to make sustainable transport commonplace. Um, that's a very well-known example. Obviously, Google, the organizing the world's information. You come across these uh, groups, these leadership teams where they've set a purpose and over time you can see they, they believe it. You know, Amazon, the most customer-centric organization in the world, that is their purpose. So one view is that purpose is resonating, it's strong, and if you set it and it emotionally binds people together, you can do amazing things and generate the profit. Another view is, no, what complete rubbish. You set the profit targets, we're running the metrics, we're playing the dividends, and we're going to pay people and give them uh, very direct um, scorecards to go and align to, and they should succeed. Where, where do you stand on those two extremes? Well, certainly for me, especially in our services business, is that... Uh, you need everyone to pull in the same direction. You know, you need to have, you need to have a proper um, uh, target. People need to know where they're going. You don't have to tell them how to get there, but you need to tell them how you're doing it. And you also need to manage um, your expenditure because you, you know, capital is a limited resource. And so you have to make sure that when you're spending your, your, um, um, your 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 critical resource that uh, it's going you know um a, a towards a collective outcome and in that way you get efficiency and you also get a lot of targeted innovation and that's why i think it's it's really really important if you want to do this um, um, um let's call it scattergun in innovation we're just letting everyone do what they want to you can do it on the edge there's nothing wrong with having lots of ideas, but it needs to be a small part of your business. It's that whole Nassim Talib anti-fragility thing. You can't do things that aren't focused in a, that are you know, big enough to bring the company down. Do them on the edge, and if you come up with great ideas, then you know, bring them inside and, and you know, make them disrupt your own business. And that's the way you get the, the efficiency. So I absolutely believe that uh, um, you have to have a purpose and it needs to be relevant to what you're trying to achieve. Well, you've got a lot of agreement uh, from the audience. I'm just sharing that now. I think 97, <laughs> I've never seen that sort of result before. 97% um, are aligned with what you've just said effectively there. Which is I voted 142 times. <laughs> That's absolutely remarkable. <laughs> All right, um, let's start looking forward. Um, but with a question that's looking back, Technology, in fact, let's, let's divide it up into three questions. What is your forecast about technological change over the next five years? So what is um, definitely happening, and we've, this isn't a new phenomenon, this is really how history is, is repeating itself, um, is that people are starting to look for solutions, um, not for products. They are less and less interested in the, the technology behind the solution than they are, does the solution work? And we're seeing it more with our customers. And this is why you're seeing more and more people, as we say, it's, it isn't best of suite, it's best of breed. 
So where they will mix a Microsoft solution with a SAP solution, with a you know, Google solution, and they'll get their best of breed out rather than a vertically integrated IBM, HP or something solution. And you're seeing the big OEMs allowing that to happen more and more because they're realizing this is the future. And I think that's quite important because if you think about just anything, even electricity, you know, years ago, you would have been worried about maybe your generator or how you generated heat in, in, you know, in, 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 your, in your house. Um, and you would have gone and chosen the best, whether it's German, Japanese, you know, whatever technology. But today, when you switch on your light and hopefully there's no load shedding and your lights come on, you don't know what technology sits in those generators, in those boilers, et cetera, at ESCOM. Ditto for Wi-Fi today. You know, um, not so long ago, we used to come in and log onto the Wi-Fi and, you know, uh, um, uh, boot it up. We were very conscious about the technology. Today, you walk into a restaurant, coffee shop, workplace, you just want to connect and you want it, you know, to work. And this is, the, cell phones the same. You don't really know whether they're using Siemens, Huawei, ZTE technology for their, their towers, you just want connectivity. And this is moving more and more up the stack. And the first bit of outsourcing was infrastructure, desktops, server farms, data storage, connectivity. And that's slowly moving up and up to the point today where you open an app like Facebook, like WhatsApp. You don't really know what's driving it. You just know it must work because it must give you this outcome. And so more and more of the tech world is, 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 is happening. And so uh, this is happening like that. And so EOH, you know, 1.0 was all this outsourcing of enterprise um, a software, of um, uh, hardware, uh, of data storage, et cetera. 2.0 is, is, you know, very much about uh, the open source app development, UI, UX, um, security, cloud, etc. Uh, a a 3.0 is going to be more about building platforms, building solutions that you build once, use a thousand times, because then you bring the cost down. Uh, building something that's 80% standard, only 20% bespoke. That's going to be more and more of you know, what's going to happen. And that's going to really bring um, the economy much closer to the SME and the MME because they'll be able to compete, focus totally on what they do best and outsource the rest. And it's, it's, it's interesting. This is what Zara do you know, already. They don't run their finance and their systems and everything. They just know they're good at clothes design and they're good at um, you know, clothes manufacturing. And that's what they do. They focus totally on that. They outsource the rest of their business largely. And so this is becoming more the norm. Do you think that's going to accelerate? I mean, those were a few technologies that you've mentioned. I know you um, have been involved with Singularity University and, and other thought leadership organizations for, well, it must be a decade or more now. And they're always proposing that we're in this kind of rapid exponential progression over the next five or six years where these different technologies are you know, additive and augmented on each other. And we're just getting this hugely uh, shifting speed at which we're, we're bringing these things. Is that something that you agree to? And, and how do you see that affecting what's happening over the next decade? Yeah, I think this is uh, exactly what COVID has done. It's just accelerated a trend. And I think it's going to accelerate even faster. I mean, if you just have a look at uh, what happened in South Africa, we immediately when COVID hit, there was an ICT or TMT forum that got set up. And the first thing people were asking for was more bandwidth because a lot of people were going to be at home. You're going to be driving call centers from home. You needed that bandwidth. It couldn't just be in the office. And that bandwidth didn't exist. And they were worried that the cell phone towers would fall over. And so what Ecosta did is they gave out uh, some temporary 5G spectrum. And uh, as you know, Vodacom went and spent half a billion in South Africa rolling out 5G in, in the metro areas. And the, but the real benefit of 5G is this IoT industrial automation um, smart industry stuff uh, and we can spend a lot of time on it but that is that is really what is going to change economies and the fact that that has been ex accelerated was interesting that telcom 
has said that they're not going to pay dividends for the next three years because they want to focus on monetizing and, and uh, scaling um, uh, solutions for, for 5G for, for their customers. So there's, there's two issues there. One is they're going to spend a lot more money scaling these uh, uh, fourth industrial revolution solutions. Number one. Number two is if you were an asset manager and you had bought Telcom because it was a, a yield stock, paid dividends every year and had you know, lower growth, well, it's just changed overnight. They're now a growth stock and they're not going to pay dividends. So do you as an asset manager have to now fundamentally change your whole portfolio analysis? That's just one example. Uh, you know, think about the hospitality industry, et cetera, et cetera. They're all going to have to massively re-vector and see how they do it. We've seen Caro schools and, uh, already doing um, a, a selling an online package. So you don't have to come to the school ever. You can actually just get um, you know, something online. And we had uh, Mr. Flissmas taking us through that as well, which was also fascinating. So you can see how quickly in a crisis things change and accelerate. And I think we're going to see more of this over the next uh, uh, two or three years. So you're clear about the future. It's an exponential rate of change. How are you guys revectoring? So we've done a few things. You know, one is we've tried to take a lot of cost out of the business. I think in these crises, especially in recessions, you really need to be lean, mean, and you need to be flexible. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting that a huge portion of our staff have actually uh, enjoyed this work from home. I don't think anyone really wants to do it 100% but they want the flexible time, the time to be parents, the time to do exercise, the time to do other things. And so it's become a far more delivery-based outcome. And I think this is going to be the new norm, not for everything, because clearly if you, you know, having to, uh, you know, do something physical like a, 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 um, a waitress or a waiter, you can't do that remotely. Um, but, um, um, this is going to be a new way. So we've really focused on making sure that our people have this choice and we're working through that at the moment. You almost come up with a, a Mr. Delivery menu of this is how I want my employment contract to work. This is what I want to do. I want to do job share or I only want to work four days a week or I only want to do this. I mean, I don't see why that should be a problem as long as people are delivering uh, and an outcome and you can manage the outcome. So that's the, the first thing is really to, to create a different way of work. The second thing we're doing is we also uh, are now, we've created something called Rocket Lab, which is going to be our own internal innovation, which is um, allows um, um, our staff to actually spend some time innovating and maybe we'll get something there um, that we only pay them four days a week because one day, they're going to go and sit in the innovation lab. And if they innovate something and it works, we'll help them with that. And they'll get some, you know, re revenue share out of it so that they innovate inside the company, not outside the company. I'd also like to get to a place where uh, as many staff can be on a no leave policy. You know, you work when you have to and you go and leave when you want to just deliver an outcome. And uh, it's more an honesty box system but uh, it certainly has worked for us uh, you know, in, 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 in working from home. We haven't seen generally, we haven't seen a drop in productivity. In fact, it's really highlighted the people who were always um, trying to skin off somewhere because you, you get on a Zoom call like this, you agree some outcomes, you meet a week later and you say, okay, Colin, you were meant to do what? Have you done it? And it, it's, 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 it's created a great focus. I really think there is a big opportunity for new ways of work and actually people enjoying being part of an organization. And it's almost like you're going to have to create an um, organization as a service. You know, you bring your skills and we create the, the, um, the infrastructure for you to uh, succeed. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing we're doing is we've kicked off uh, a project where we will be pooling all our IP into a central repository. We've got tons and tons of IP APIs uh, across the business and we don't share them. So we reinvent the wheel too often. And this has created a lot of excitement because it means 
people can have a look at and use this RP for their own solutions and for their own, own customers. And eventually we would like to open that up to external parties as well. Um, the third thing we've done, because the, the sort of, um, a derivative of that is you then need to become a solution or a customer focused organization. Create solutions for your customers, not solutions for yourselves. In the old days, you created a product and then you tried to go and tell everyone how wonderful it was. But you know the old story about for every man with a hammer in his hand, everything looks like a nail. You need to get to a customer solutioning space. And so we are starting to build what we think are the core of the basic commerce platforms that are needed out there. And so any new development we're doing, because if, if you think about it, EOH is just another company. We need an ELP system, we need CRM, we need HR, we need um, BR, we need uh, finance, we need all these things. We need compliance, we need legal. So as we are building the new age stuff, we're trying to do them as cutting edge as, as, as possible, but we're doing them as a service so that we can start offering the systems that we've built to our customers as well, and we'll be the reference site. So, you know, we're gonna eat our own food um, and not try and sell people stuff that we don't use. And this is, this is gonna be interesting because it's gonna create um, a lot of insight into, you know, what are the real solutions and it allows people to buy it on a, you know, time and use basis. So you only pay for what you use, you don't pay for something that you only use on a weekend. So you, you've got this, um, and we'll come back to some of those points. <laughs> I like the smile, you know, it's going to be interesting, but it will come back to that. We're in this exponential world. Things are moving fast. You've highlighted a few things that you're looking at from the worker's perspective in terms of getting the job done. Does the leadership model have to change when you compare it back five or 10 years because of this technological shift and these mega trends? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, in the old days, you had uh, very hierarchical organizations because um, uh, information wasn't ubiquitous. Um, wisdom is, is still not ubiquitous because you need to do your 10,000 hours on things. But this is the fundamental difference. You know, someone starting in the organization has access to the same amount of information as you, you do. And in fact, a youngster's probably reading and doing more stuff because maybe they don't have kids or they've you know, got different stuff, they're hungrier. So they probably are crunching through more information and more ideas than you are. And to stifle that in a very high you know, pyramid you know, um, a structure, I think is very um, a detrimental. And so the job of a leader or a CEO is really to uh, lead, lead from the middle. And you're more a mentor today than anything else. You're trying to orchestrate traffic. You, you're trying to uh, um, um, drive uh, or, or, or assist in ideas happening. You know, um, for example, you know, I've been in the industry, I've been working in South Africa for 30 years. I've got a lot of contacts, I've got a lot of people. When I was a youngster, you know, people like the Reserve Bank governor was the same age as me. He was a, you know, the T boy somewhere like I was but today is not, and we've, we've sort of grown up in industry together. So you can facilitate and help a lot of people um, um, you know, do things, and you can use your 10,000 hours experience just to guide people. So you become much more a mentor, and uh, you know, this idea that there's still hierarchies really irritates me. And so my big drive always, even you know, as, as far back as when I was at APSA or Barclays, was to try and create a very flat structure. So even the most junior person is as close to the CEO as possible because then you can share ideas. It was quite interesting in one of those um, uh, EXO things we did at EPSA, one of the youngsters came up to me and said to me, you know, that uh, he knew that I was very interested in Egyptology and it's, it's actually fascinating. I said, yes, the maths behind it is unbelievable that it happened five, you know, thousand years ago that the, that the measurements of the uh, um, um, pyramid are divisible by the distance between the, the earth and the, the moon, et cetera, et cetera. And he said to me, you know, um, uh, do you know they're one of the, 
the seven ancient wonders of the world. So I said, yes. He says, do you know they're more than 5,000 years old, those, those pyramids? I said, yes. He said, so why are you using it as your management structure? <laughs> and uh, it was a real wake-up call for me. And uh, so ever since then, I've really tried to break down hierarchies. Everyone in a business just has a role to play. And this goes back to the core of this purpose issue. If you've got, like we've got 8,500 people working, you're not driving a hierarchy. You're just driving and, you know, everyone's got a role. If they don't understand the purpose and their role in the purpose, how can they be successful? How can they add value? And, um, and if you drive that and you get everyone um, driving this outcome, you will make a profit by definition. Was it a difficult transfer, uh, transformation for you? Because obviously growing up, earning your spurs in the financial industry, but clearly that's very hierarchical, very old fashioned, still is today for most of the organizations. And now here we are, you know, decades later, um, and you could be talking in the same way as the CEO as Netflix does, for example, or, you know, Valve Corporation, very, very open, subservient leadership. Uh, the goal isn't to go and tell people what to do, it's to set the purpose and so on. Was that difficult? Because I know a lot of leaders find this a very scary prospect because in some ways you're giving up power. Yeah, it, it is a very, very scary prospect, especially when you're working to climb up this ladder your whole life. And then you get there and then someone says to you, well, you must just, you know, give it all away to everyone and just help them, you know, be, be clever. And so this, this idea, I mean, when you get into a position of leadership, is, it's, it is quite a scary position because you've suddenly got all these clever people, ambitious people underneath you. And your instant reaction is to conserve your own position because you've worked so hard to get there. But actually, it's exactly the wrong thing to do. Um, you know, they, if, if you can actually get as many people to, you know, work 100%, it means that you can spend more time thinking and more time directing. And actually, you, you can get a 10x outcome. Um, I remember at uh, APSA, I used to, you know, get all these emails, and it's just natural for people to send stuff to the CEO, and it's natural for the CEO to want to respond. But I realized the more I responded, the more emails I got. And eventually I was just an email jockey. And then I realized that I needed to take, I needed to have, my, my aim should be, my um, uh, what um, massive transformative purpose should be, I want to have zero emails. I must get to a point where nobody wants to email me because the, the, the organization is working and running itself. And so I got to a point where if I answered an email, I would say, Thank you for your email, so-and-so, but Colin is responsible for that. And I'd send it off to, you know, copy Colin. And then Colin would deal with it. The next time they wouldn't send me the email, they'd, they'd send it to Colin. So I judge my success as a leader by how few emails I get, interestingly. Um, and, Can I give um, you a challenge? Yeah. Uh, you might have heard this story, if you, and, and it's well worth watching. It's one of the TED Talk interviews with um, which they do. This one was with Reed Hastings from Netflix, and his... Um, his thing that he wanted to share where he felt he'd really succeeded is he'd gone for a whole quarter in 2018 without taking a single decision. So you're willing to make that challenge for uh, Q4. Yeah, but I, I think that's exactly right, Colin, is if you're, not, if you're not allowing people to take decisions, the only decisions I think that should end up in my box are the decisions that are going to make the business anti-fragile. There's a lot of decisions that, you know, it's like, I, I remember at one of my, my previous em, employers, I had to sign off on all international travel. When you've got eight and a half thousand people reporting to you, I've got no idea whether someone should be flying internationally or not. The question is, is whoever is, is, is doing it, have a four hours you know, policy, someone who knows, make a decision. And you eventually can bell curve it and look backwards and say, okay, here are the bad decisions and go and tell people. One thing about a policy I can tell you, you give it to eight and a half thousand you know, people, you're gonna have at least two or three thousand different views on what that policy actually says. So, uh, you know, you have to have guidelines, you have to have um, things, but the only decisions that should be coming to me or to Exco or to the board are those very big decisions that if you get them wrong, you could take the organization down. Otherwise, the organization should just run.
and you manage it through accountability, through transparency, you know, through, you know, looking backwards rather than stopping people making decisions going forward. Imagine if Michael Jordan was in like three seconds to go in the, the, the final and uh, he wasn't sure whether he was allowed to shoot or not and he had to ask the coach whether he can shoot this basket or not. You know, by then it's, it's gone. And uh, in this exponential world, we, we really need to be able to make decisions fast, fail fast and learn from our mistakes. So let's talk about that. We've got about five, 10 minutes left. Let's go into this idea of failure and, and mistakes. Um, you mentioned that you are trying to move towards, well, and we've got an example that we can, we can go around because you said it, you want to get to this place where people don't have to book their holidays and vacations. That may or may not work. It might be a complete disaster. It might be awesome. It could be anything in between. How do you go and risk assess um, the possible outcomes of a model like that to go and take the decision whether or not to implement it in, and how to implement it? How do you get comfortable with it, with that risk? Yeah, so normally what you do is, um, you know, going back to this anti-fragile thing, you don't just throw it out to the whole organization. You go and pick a group and you say, okay, we're going to try this and see how it works. And you learn from that. It's the same as agile. You know, um, it's the difference between waterfall and agile, I suppose. You don't just say, okay, I'm going to spend a hundred million rand on this. You do the proof of concepts, the, the MVPs, et cetera, and you sort of scale it up as you get more, more comfortable. But, um, you know, some of these things, um, you, you can throw out there, and you, but you have to have systems to monitor them. This is the beauty of the, the digital age. It's very easy to monitor this. And you, you set up the system, you monitor it. And if you have to change a decision, change the decision. The worst decision is no decision. You know, whether you, you can always change a bad decision. Uh, and people need to be confident about that. Once you realize you are going to make mistakes, it's much easier to take chances as long as you know. And I always say to people, don't take a chance in something that can destroy the whole business. Like, you know, for example, don't take a chance on bribery and corruption. It might be small. It might only be a hundred rand bribe. But if you get caught, your career is done. So that's an anti-fragile thing. Um, but if you're just doing something around leave and uh, it works or it doesn't work, you can always change that decision. So, okay, we tried it, but it didn't work, but we're going to vector it this way. And going back to the Michael Jordan basket thing, if you don't try, you'll never succeed. You may not fail, but you'll never succeed. And unfortunately, if you don't try, you end up in mediocrity. And that is you know, quite a boring outcome. I'd hate to finish my career and look back and say I was a very mediocre person. That'd be a waste of a life. Jeff Bezos, he made a very good um, analogy of that. He was asked a similar question. He said, you know, decisions aren't difficult. As long as you look at the, the worst possible outcome and you think it's recoverable and reversible, if that outcome should occur, it's easy. Take the decision. Um, exactly. And he was using that as an analogy for reversing out of the big property deals in New York, which obviously uh, he felt was an easy decision to, to enter it because it was not a problem for him to reverse. So that's, that's pretty um, significant. Um, looking in, so a question here that's just come through as well. What's, um, and it kind of relates to this as well. Have your, have your experimentation for people working at home already given you enough evidence that this is going to become permanent and you're going to start reducing the real estate requirements? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we were anyway reducing our real estate requirements, but I think COVID has, has pushed it a step further um, in that um, I think we're going to get more people doing a hybrid and being working more flexible times. You know, this idea that you must be in the office at eight o'clock and leave at five, I think is dead. Uh, yes, obviously, if you, you know, running a call center or something, or stuff like that, you maybe have to work eight to five because that's when the call center is open. But you know, in, in today's world, you can job share or flex with, with other people if you need to go and do something yourself. So I think it's going to take a lot of pressure off. Instead of traveling, if you live in Pretoria and your office is in four ways, traveling at the peak traffic that it takes an hour and a half, you can wake up in the morning, you can log in, you can work till 10 o'clock. And for those three meetings you have to have between 10 and two, you then drive through when there's no traffic and you drive home when there's no traffic. And if there's load shedding in, in, in Pretoria, maybe you go to our office in Midrand, book a desk and work there because the Wi-Fi and the printers and everything are working. So I think people are going to be much more comfortable 
with a flexible work arrangement rather than this, uh, I, have to, I have to work in my office in four ways because that's where my unit is. I think, you know, 100% of the time. So we, I mean, as you know, we inherited a lot of uh, wasted property and we were busy doing it anyway. But uh, we've really upped that uh, ante right now. And we'll, we'll create like we work spaces in all our offices. So if I want to go to Ramberg because it's closer or Bryanston because it's closer and I want to work there for the, the day or half the day, I can. Um, and uh, you just got to, you know, get on the app, what the Get Space app that we've created. You get your space, you book it, you pay for it, you know, through your, your cost center, you go and work there. And then when I need to go somewhere else, I can go somewhere else. So I do think it's going to fundamentally change. People just need to get used to it. Um, you know, that um, um, it's a bit like, uh, I think the, the biggest eye-opener for me was... Um, in the past, everyone wanted to travel up for like an exco because you'd be the only one on a webinar sitting in uh, Cape Town and it was difficult. But when a lot of people are on the webinar, it then works because there's etiquette and there's ways of doing it. And that was the, I, I suppose, the, the big thing for me. I was always a big thing, you know, please come be in, in, in person. But it was only because there was one person on the webinar, it always made it difficult for that one person. But if you've got more people on them, you know, people have become much more, um, are courteous and much more aware of you know these different ways of work. Uh, this idea you must fly to London for a meeting as a banker. I used to fly to London for a day, you know, overnight in the aircraft, have a few meetings, fly back again in the evening. I'll never ever do that again. I can promise you that right now. Okay, two minutes. What are the things that you're most excited about that are in the development pipeline for IOCO at the moment? The things that you are super excited. If of course you're allowed to talk about them no no i'm massively excited about some of these new ideas that have been come out these ways of work we've got a real client-centric solutioning as i said out of it this api store or microservices store or rp store that we're creating i think is going to be phenomenal because we've got so much to put in it it's almost like we're building a macro if you know what i mean uh we're not just building a coffee store or something we're actually building a macro the second things we are, are doing, two things, we, or three things we're doing. One is we're starting to create the core of e-commerce as a service uh, because we've got all this uh, tech. And we're starting with SME lending and financing, which, as you know, is a huge problem in South Africa, 352 billion rand problem. Uh, and I think that's going to be great for South Africa when we get it right. And the third bit that's very exciting for me, is, as I spoke about earlier, is we're creating this, um, let's call it shared service as a service or back office as a service or HQ as a service. So all your back office functions over the next three years, we're going to create as a service. So SMEs and medium you know, companies can actually buy something off the shelf or rent space uh, to do compliance, governance, training, HR, recruitment, you know, uh, forensics, etc. And I think that's also going to be a big game changer in um, this, you know, middle to bottom of the economy. It will really allow people to focus on their core ideas and not have to worry about running a business. Stephen, thank you very much. I'm going to hand over to Marius just before I do everyone on the call. Uh, do drop a note in the chat. Give us some feedback, what you liked, what you didn't like, what you think of the series, anything that you want to say. That'd be really awesome if you can do that. Marius, over to you. Uh, thank you, Colin. Thank you, Stephen. I think I'm going to start before I chat about Stephen, just to thank all the customers that joined us. I mean, it was incredible for us to have SARS, Sasa, Tupperware, Pia Solar, Investec, Ultron Nexus, uh, Avis, Nashua, amongst a whole lot of others. We had more than 280 people on the call at a point in time and specifically not sticking to the script, Colin. Um, with your incredible platform you've created with this Inspire series, I wanted to just share something about Stephen that a lot of us know that work with him. He's got an incredible vision. Um, he's got such an, a, a voracious appetite for heuristic solutions that some of us will have to check and listen to the recordings after he's instructed us what to do. But what wouldn't come out uh, and what I really wanted to compliment Stephen on and having worked with him closely over this last period is, is what um, his demeanor and how he's dealt with uh, courageous leadership. We've got the solve uh, purpose which he elaborated on and one of those is about his courage and I think 
um, you know, what we've certainly learned and what hasn't come out uh, uh, as transparently in this session specifically is it isn't about for him being loud and abrasive. It isn't about empty words and it certainly isn't about uh, posturing positivity. Um, for him, it's purely about the principles. Uh, and I don't think too often, certainly our clients or the staff really know what kind of virtue and what courage he's got to deal with what he's been dealing with at EOH. I think we glibly refer to things um, uh, you know about corruption, but it's just been a real privilege to to observe the way he deals with these things. Because for him, um, it isn't about standing up and thinking; it is about uh, sitting down and listening. So, yeah, Stephen, congratulations on on what you've done so far. Um, your random acts of courage uh, are sort of pervasive through the organisation. And on behalf of Colin and the platform, we'd like to congratulate you and thank you for what you shared. And for those of you on here, next week, Colin will be talking to Gina Bianchini from Los Angeles. She's the founder of Mighty Networks, and she'll be discussing uh, uh, digital communities uh, that she uses to transform. So thank you. And for those of you on the call and our customers, thanks for joining. Thank you, Marius. Thank you, everyone, again. Thank you, Stephen. Until next Thursday. Thanks, everyone.